Welcome to another episode of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Liam McCollum, and I'm your host for today. And my guest is Sam Husseini. We recorded this episode on July 13th, 2023. And I first discovered Sam when I saw the viral video of him asking Secretary of State spokesman Ned Price about claims that the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. I later found clips of him asking government spokespeople tough questions about Julian Assange, Iran, and nuclear weapons. And in this interview, we discuss the state of journalism in our country and why journalists seem to parrot regime talking points and and never ask tough questions. We also talk about his work on COVID-19 origins, the potential for left-right cooperation, and his criticisms of RFK Jr., Sam is the creator of VotePact.org, a strategy to use left-right cooperation to stop the establishment's perpetual war machine and the surveillance state. We talk about this strategy as well. Also, I want to give you a heads up. There was a bit of an echo on my end during my second question, so the audio drops out just a bit, but it seems to correct after. So if you're unable to make out what I'm asking, the question is about the state of journalism how he is able to get into these press briefings and whether the briefings are as contrived as they seem, since they rarely ever seem to get tough questions in. Um, But anyways, I I hope you enjoy this episode and and here's Sam. All right, so I first encountered your work, I think about a few months ago when I came across a video that went viral on Twitter um, of you confronting, I believe it was Ned Price in the State Department press briefing, um, and you were pressuring him on uh, Seymour Hersh's article about the Nord Stream bombings. Um, and then I, I just clipped that video I posted up on Twitter, and then you shortly followed me there after. And then I, I did a deep dive on your work, found that you kind of have this history of this confrontational journalism. And I really appreciate that. Um, so I wanted to introduce you to our audience. Um, I also found that you, uh, you made headlines a while ago when you were trying to ask a question at a Putin and Trump summit. Um, and you held up a poster and you were uh, accosted by some people and taken out of the room. And I, I highly recommend everyone type in Sam Husseini on YouTube and find that video. It's pretty entertaining. Um, but I, I'm just wondering if you can uh, give a little bit about your background and how you got into journalism and, and maybe a little bit about your ideological background as well. Sure. Um, well, um... I don't know how far back you want to go. Um, I mean, I guess for me, um, it begins in, you know, my, my dad, uh, who's Palestinian, uh, and talking politics and, you know, educating me about the machinations of different players and so on. So that sort of, you know, from childhood gave me a sort of deep history um, as to the, the politics of the Cold War and so on. Um, and I got further radicalized. Um, I guess through reading Noam Chomsky when I was in my late teens, early 20s. Um, I worked for a time with FAIR, uh, the Media Watch Group, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Um, I, I, you know, I had a, you know, I, I was doing computer science and math and, you know, in New York, that meant Wall Street. And I really wasn't into that. Um, so I got into writing journalism um, and I've you know, gotten freelance pieces uh, all over the place over the years. Uh, I worked at a independent nonprofit. Um, and then I really felt, the and, and I had an office at the press club, at the National Press Club. So I would go to the events there and ask the elephant in the room, tough question, right? You know, um, the thing that nobody else was asking. And I, I kind of grew tired of, aspects of the left that felt to me very insular you know literally people just you know invite you know talking to people who they agreed with and you know sectarianism of it and so on um so i really enjoyed the 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 tough questioning that i could do at the press club and eventually um another journalistic friend had the bright idea of asking tough questions uh, to politicos as they walked out of the Sunday morning talk shows, uh, right? Because the problem is of access and they go on these Sunday morning talk shows, they get asked utterly banal questions, but there's a stake out there where other cameras send 
you know, like CNN will send a camera crew in front of the ABC studios to get a video clip. And they asked the same banal question. So I went there with a cameraman and Joe asked actual tough questions. Um, and I got a fair amount out of that until I asked at the beginning of the Arab uprisings in 2011, I asked a tough question at the press club of, a, you know, major Saudi official and got suspended from the press club uh, for doing that. Um, and the ethics committee eventually overruled the executive director. So, you know, I, I won that battle, but it put me on the radar screen. So people stopped stopping for me, <laughs> you know, as soon as they, you know, that all the senators and Congress people and so on realized, you know, that I was asking these tough questions. If they saw me there, they just wouldn't stop. Um, so, um, and, uh, like you said, the, um, Putin uh, Trump summit. Uh, I, I wasn't people took it that I was trying to do a protest. I wasn't. I was waiting until the news conference was going to start. And then I was going to hold up a sign nuclear weapon ban treaty. Uh, this treaty that 122 countries has voted for the group behind it had won the Nobel Peace Prize to eliminate nuclear weapons. Um, uh, but neither Trump nor Putin had been asked about it. I did extensive research and I could never, I couldn't find any record of either of them being asked about this major treaty. Uh, so I was hoping that with Trump's, you know, impulsiveness, uh, he might call on me. Um, and uh, it, uh, uh, but uh, another reporter snitched on me. He saw me making the sign. Um, he falsely told the security officials there that I was planning a, a protest, which I wasn't doing. Um, and then in the, you know, ensuing hubbub, um, I held up the sign to show people what I was doing. Uh, I, I wasn't planning on staging a protest there. Uh, and then, you know, when I did that in answering the other reporters questions as to what was going on, they grabbed me and dragged me out of the room and, you know, kept me locked up until midnight when the press centers closed. So I couldn't get my story out until the next day. Um, so, um, you know, and, and most generally, I mean, most of my work has been on oriented on foreign policy, anti-war, um, from the, you know, Iraq sanctions, Iraq war, uh, Iraq WMDs. I did a lot of work on exposing the lies about Iraq WMDs before the invasion happened. Um, and I, uh, over the years grew appreciative of a lot of the work that uh, Ron Paul has done. I had some communication with uh, Dennis Kucinich, who I also felt at times did important work. Um, the uh, Yugoslavia war, I helped expose the name BA, uh, you know, phony um, pretexts for war there. Um, and, um, uh, you know, did some work on uh, Russiagate, um, and uh, as I said, the Arab uprisings. And in the last three years, I've been focusing on pandemic origins and how we're effectively talking about biowarfare here. Um, and uh, uh, I got a piece in Salon on that early on and then had a very hard time um, getting anything anywhere and eventually launched my Substack. I actually, I think I was the first reporter I, at, at the press club the CDC had a news conference in February of 2020, and I believe I was the first reporter to ask about, uh, you know, is it a complete coincidence that uh, this outbreak happens in the one city in China, Wuhan, with a, a BSL-4 lab? Um, and they gave a disingenuous response. And uh, part of my journalistic creed is, you know, scratch a lie, find a thief. Um, and, you know, when they gave such a disingenuous response to a fairly straightforward question that perked up my curiosity further. And, uh, and I've been spending a fair amount of time writing about that since. Yeah, well, I want to get into that a little bit because you, you just came out with a new article about um, the hearing that was held in Congress yesterday. And we're recording on July 15th. This might be released a little later. Um, but before we get into that, I, I just want to know a little bit about uh, your insights into the state of journalism right now and why you feel like there isn't any more confrontational journalism. Um, I've, I've also been very curious about your ability to get into the 
press briefing rooms uh, and and uh, whether they are as contrived as they appear because it's not very often that they actually call on a journalist who is going to ask questions. Right. So I'm, so I'm wondering what about that. Well, I think a big part of you know the problem of journalism is it's you know sectarian nature um, that you have you know MSNBC you know, it's dominated by MSNBC and CNN playing to a Democratic audience and uh, you know Fox playing to a Republican audience um, and both of them effectively colluding in terms of fostering a you know mutually uh, beneficial establishment narrative at times. Um, and it's very difficult to provide us and it's, a, it's, a, it's a hate based system, right? I mean, you know, you know, they all get by by saying, hate Trump, hate Trump, you know, MSNBC and, uh, CNN that, you know, that that's basically been their business model for several years. Um, and, um, so they can't, they don't actually have to provide any meaningful journalism if all their, you know, if they can get by, by, you know, drawing some semblance of an audience and advertisers based on the model of hating the other guys, quote unquote. So I think that that's a large part of the problem. And that sort of dovetails with um, a voting strategy that I've developed, Vote Pact, which uh, I, I'd love for us to talk about. I, I think that that might ultimately be a, a solution to a lot of these problems. Um, but um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, lately what I've been doing is getting into the State Department. And I'm able to get into the State Department. And I'm able to ask questions um, uh, for two reasons. I'm able to get in because the State Department um, is generally more open than the White House and other places, in part because they have international press there. Um, and a large part of the international press there almost play the role of um, lobbyists for, you know, pleading their case to the State Department vis-a-vis um, -vis the country that they're affiliated with or that they're from. Um, so that, that, that's kind of, you know, not, not a very appealing, um, milieu to be in, but it provides an opportunity. It, you know, the, their openness allows me to get in the room and I, I have had substantial problems getting called on at times. However, I've overcome that, um, by a series of mechanisms. For example, they go by subject. So, um, you know, if they're talking about, you know, China and, you know, so that they'll actually say, you know, any, any other questions on China before we wrap up here? And if I can jump in at the opportune moment and say, yeah, you know, so it, it requires a good amount of, you know, it's like combat, you know, it's like, you know, combat is fought, what's the old quote on four corners of a map uh, at night in the rain. Um, I guess, I guess now with phones, people don't understand what four corners of a map means. Um, but, um, you know, it, it requires, you know, one to come up with, to either be prepared or to be able to come up with an important question, um, given the substantial constraints of time and if and when they're going to call on you, given whatever subject it's on. And that, you know, had some success in doing that. Yeah, I would highly recommend that everyone uh, types your name into YouTube and and find your YouTube channel because you've had the opportunity to ask some really tough questions to these people and, and they need to hear more of it. Um, I I studied journalism in, in college a little bit and I was very disheartened by how, um, I mean, the norms and ethics around journalism seem to want to reinforce uh, I guess the establishment. So it, it's an access based really profession where the, uh, I think the desire to want to be objective is often code for don't ask tough questions because you won't be called upon in any of these press briefings. And it's, it's really unfortunate. And, and I think people like yourself, um, I know Matt Lee is another one from AP who asks some tough questions. And I think uh, a recent journalist is, Liam Cosgrove as well. And I've tried to highlight 
all of the videos when they come out, because uh, especially with this Russia-Ukraine conflict, where we're seeing more and more, I think, tough questions um, being posed. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, idea of objective journalism, to me, objective journalism means being able to question any and all parties in a tough way at all times. Right. That it means not flacking for either the Democrats or the Republicans or the U.S. or Russia or China or anybody else. Uh, that's what uh, you know. Striving for objective journalism means to me. So it's not a um, it's not a recipe for um, uh, you know deferring to power. It's a it's a recipe for taking on any and all power. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've also you, you alluded to it earlier. You you're a big advocate of left right cooperation, and you were also present at the um, anti war rally that took place in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. You have people like Dennis Bucinich there, Ron Paul. Um, and I'm wondering if you just want to talk a little bit about what inspired you to really push for left-right cooperation and what BOPACT is. Sure. Um, I mean, I came up with the idea of VotePACT uh, before uh, the 2000 election. And I was hopeful that Ralph Nader would make it his you know, strategy, uh, uh, vote pact, the, the idea of vote pact is so many people are voting against the other party. You know, I, I think this has been true for a long time and it's gotten worse and worse. Um, so instead of people canceling out each other, one person self-loathingly voting for the Democrat and the other person self-loathingly voting for the Republican, uh, what you do is pair, get people to start pairing up uh, and both vote for the anti-establishment candidates of their choice. If you have a candidacy that can draw from both sides, quote unquote, both sides, that becomes a winning strategy. So if you had, you know, if, if Ralph Nader were smarter or more interested in winning, or if you had a, uh, imagine a Ron Paul, Dennis Kucinich ticket, uh, or whoever the next generation of that would be, um, it, drawing on the commonalities of left, right, in where I think that they're most correct, you know, anti-war, civil liberties, against corporate trade deals, uh, pro-Main Street, uh, critical of Wall Street, critical of big tech censorship. There's a whole plethora of issues that the principled left and right uh, agree on. Um, and I think that that becomes the foundation of what I would call a radical center. So what I would love to see is a campaign that is built around this so that um, it actually becomes the strategy, you know, brings together people endorsing the, the candidate or candidates um, so that you have a... Uh, you know, a union official coming together with a small businessman saying, look, we've we've been, you know, fighting each other, you know, over issues after issue, but we agree on this candidate. Uh, and, you know, you can come up with all kinds of creative pairings that then become the signature um, of of such such a campaign. And I think that the agreements between the left and right are more profound than most people realize. Um, for example, there are some disagreements between the left and right, but many of those things are rather superficial. Uh, take immigration, for example. There's probably you know a fair amount of disagreement between what we call the left and what we call the right on immigration. But a large part of immigration, the root causes of it, are things that the left and right actually agree on. Um, desperate immigration is caused by wars, U.S. interventions, uh, uh, crooked corporate trade deals, which aren't really trade deals, um, and uh, things like uh, 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 drug policies. Um, th those are a large part of what causes desperate uh, illegal immigration. So then you end up, the system is oh so happy that the left and right are at each other's throats over immigration um, uh, rather than cooperating in figuring out how to further their um, uh, remedies uh, for the problems that cause 
uh, desperate immigration. Uh, and I, I think that the, there are a series of things like that, that if, if the left and if the principled left and right cooperated in getting agendas through that a large part of the, um, you know, the, the, the conflicts that the establishment media love to focus on uh, would, would largely evaporate. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm wondering, do you think that these candidates would need to run in a third party? Or are you saying that this could even happen under the current uh, two party system? Like, well, what do you think about a pairing like um, Donald Trump and RFK? Because that's been talked about recently, too. That would be interesting. I mean, my, you know, I'm skeptical. Uh, I've criticized both of them, of course. And, you know, particularly, you know, I feel like Donald Trump's administration, you know, could have delivered on some version of America first and didn't. And that, you know, Trump ended up, you know, what I call them the, the opposable thumb of the establishment. You know, he, he looks like he's against it, but he just helped it grab more. You know, he didn't start a new war, but, you know, a whole series of weird you know, of things that he did ended up furthering uh, the posture of the U.S. as empire. Um, and, um, and, you know, RFK, I've certainly criticized him on his stance on Israel. Um, uh, but I, I certainly see the opportunity. I mean, my ideal scenario would be that you have an insurgent run in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party and then merge together in the general. Um, it could be those same people emerging or those same people sort of being the kingmakers of the next stage. You know, so far what we've had on the, at least on the Democratic Party side, is these so-called insurgency runs, whether it's Kucinich or Jesse Jackson before him or uh, Bernie Sanders. And they always end up funneling the votes and, you know, backing the establishment person who gets the Democratic nomination and I think that's completely destructive um, so that, that would be my ideal architecture two insurgent campaigns that then merge together could it be RFK and um, Trump po possibly but I'm, I'm, I'm frankly very very wary uh, to, to put it minimally at both although I mean I agree with a lot of what RFK is saying in terms of corporate power um, in terms of the pandemic, although he's not saying enough on that. I'm, I've been kind of surprised at how little um, he said about, um, you know, uh, pan, you know pan, COVID origins, which we'll be talking about, and other related issues, gain of function, the creation of potential pandemic pathogens. Uh, it kind of, he, he hasn't really written what I think is the very justified outrage by a large part of the American public on those issues. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why he's doing that. Yeah. And then I, I think another pathway would be that someone like RFK or Trump would drop out before the primary. Um, but I think RFK is fully committed to run through. And unfortunately, there are sore loser laws. Um, no, many uh, states. Yeah, I'm working on a piece on that. And okay. There are, um, there are problems of the timeline as to when you need to jump ship and so on. But the sore loser laws, there's a hole in them. And that is that when you run for president, nobody actually votes for you. They vote for the electors. Uh -huh. um, so there's a very sound legal argument that, said that, that, that effectively nixes the sore loser laws for the office of the presidency because if rfk runs for the democratic nomination loses he can still run for president because in the general election no one would effectively be voting for him they would be voting for the electors who in turn would vote for him uh, well, you, you might be familiar with richard winger he's laid this out uh, he, he does ballot access news um, uh, and that's where i got that from yeah, I'll check that out. And, and you've written about um, the DNC and their recent uh, court case that they won, where they basically said that they could go behind closed doors and, and pick who their nominee is. I'm wondering if you can summarize that argument. And I guess with that knowledge, um, what do you think RFK's intentions are? Because you, you've also 
written a little bit about um, the possibility that RFK maybe unintentionally or intentionally is serving as um, someone who will soak up the populist energy. Um, and then all of that will be destroyed once uh, Biden is elected or whoever the preferred nominee is elected. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, the, the, you know, is he just simply the latest and, you know, most extreme manifestation of this pattern of people running in the Democratic Party um, using the energies of different movements? The most recent one was, you know, the energy that came out of the Occupy movement in, you know, a little over 10 years ago ended up getting effectively funneled into the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020. And he, he ends up, you know, backing the establishment Democratic Party candidate and gets virtually nothing to show for it, uh, except that, you know, his campaign took up a lot of energy and money and so on. <laughs> um, and so the threat is that uh, RFK's junior is effectively doing the same thing, except in this case, I think it's even worse because, as I say, he spent so little time talking about things that are animating a lot of his supporters. He's certainly talked about, you know, the Ukraine war, uh, which I think is generally great. I could certainly quibble with some of what he says there, um, but uh, in general, it's it's you know an incredible voice of sanity considering. The, the derangement that's coming out of Biden and so on. Um, but he's not talking about, you know, the creation of potential pandemic pathogens. He's not talking about the WHO treaty. You know, you know, tw 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you had the uh, World Trade Organization uh, effective treaty um, effectively trying to do a global power grab. And you had, you know, riots in the streets in Seattle uh, and other things as a result of that, that effectively stopped that. And back in 1999, here we're seeing the W, the World Health Organization, uh, doing a power grab, and it, it's getting very little uh, notice. And I'm really surprised that Kennedy isn't focusing on that. And that that makes me worry about what's really driving his his campaign. Um, I, I would, you know. Um, I, I don't understand it unless uh, he's either pursuing a very strange strategy from my point of view, or he's actually, honest, to be honest with you, you know, potentially doing some of the bidding of the establishment. Well, when, when I first encountered your article making this argument that... Um, oh. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't... Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Let's talk about that. And then, yeah. uh, I didn't talk about the DNC thing, I'm sorry. Yeah, not a problem. But when I first encountered that article, I, I, I was kind of a little skeptical, thought that uh, um, it would take like a grand conspiracy or whatever for like a grand plan really thought out for someone like RFK to um, run with the full intention of soaking up uh, all of these votes. But then I, I started looking at the historical pattern. I mean, we even saw this with Obama, where I mean, he, he was posed as the anti-war candidate and then the anti-war movement really just evaporated after he was elected um so it, it's just hard for me because it, it does appear that rfk has this uh like really earnest interest in in ending the war in ukraine um so i can't get a read on him whether he actually thinks he's capable of winning um because the current dnc rules as we alluded to basically Keep him out. Um, they, they can go behind closed doors and, and select whoever the, their unit it is. Right. There was a lawsuit um, by some Bernie Sanders supporters um, against the Democratic National Committee saying, you know, the way that they've conducted themselves effectively robbed Bernie Sanders of the nomination. And in the trial, the lawyer for the DNC literally said in court, we can pick the nominee however we want. We're an independent organization and we can go back to doing it in the smoke filled back room. And that's that. Um, and they won. <laughs> um, and the guy, uh, the lawyer who put forward the, the lawsuit against the DNC Beck is interestingly still banned uh, from so-called free speech Twitter. Um, so, you know, 
you know, that seems to me another sign that, you know, there, there are sectors of the establishment that want to keep that critique uh, of the establishment uh, as obscured as possible. Um, and um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I mean, the, the Obama thing notes that even when you have it, a, what, a, what appears to many people to be an insurgent campaign and it wins, it's actually just another manifestation of the establishment. It's just sort of a rebranding of some sort. Um, and that could end up being what happens with RFK, to be totally honest with you. I mean, I, and I don't say any of this to be defeatist. I just want to be alert and to figure out how, you know, people who actually want to see positive change, want to be, want to see serious journalism, uh, want to see independent thought uh, flourish, uh, you know, being able to critique every aspect of this as uh, as things move forward. Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on this because um, a lot of libertarians, the anti-war libertarians have, have been really pleased with RFK and at least like forcing the issue on the Ukraine war um, and, and really making people talk about it. I think that that's the benefit of his campaign is that um, he can at least move the needle a little bit. So I appreciate that your perspective is actually a critique from the anti-war left because often us libertarians we get attacked for supporting um rfk at all because uh of the 90 percent that we might disagree with him on but but we're just here saying well at least he's good on this issue we can coalition with him on on the most important issue right now good good i think that's i think that's proper I think that's yeah proper. and um so you were talking about how RFK isn't talking about um, the the bigger story of, of the COVID origins um, of the WHO. And you recently wrote, actually today, you wrote an article about um, the hearing that took place in Congress. Um, and, and you were an early critic of the uh, COVID origin story, the official line. So I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, your article and, and what, what were the major takeaways from the hearing yesterday uh, what was brought up and what should the audience know about it? Um, the, the the most recent hearing was with uh, Robert Gary of Tulane University and Christian Anderson of Scripps Research. They were the two main authors of the second pillar of propaganda um, uh, that uh, convinced the global public uh, about the propaganda line that COVID could not have lab origin early 2020. The first pillar of propaganda was the Lancet letter, uh, which was led by Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, who funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and this proximal origins piece in natural medicine was the second um, pillar. Um, I was alerted to the highly dubious nature of this article soon after it was published by Dr. Merrill Nass longtime expert on um, the anthrax vaccines and biowarfare generally. Um, and um, I wrote a piece critiquing this article, among other things, and to highlight that, no, it, it actually could have come out of a lab and it highlights the threat of biowarfare. Um, and so uh, eventually uh, more and more people realized the fallacious nature of this article, um, that it wasn't a real science. It, it purported to, to show that uh, COVID could not be a laboratory construct, but it didn't actually do that if you parsed through it. Um, and uh, part of what I did was I did a deep dive into the scientists who were clearly lying, you know, to, to, you know, to say, okay, people will catch up and figure out that they are lying, but I want to know why they're lying. And um, part of what I discovered about these two individuals, uh, Gary and Anderson, is they are the president and vice president of the Viral Hemorrhagic Fever Consortium. These are U.S. labs in West Africa. Um, and in 2014, you had Africans charging that these labs were responsible for the Ebola outbreak, which was the leading crisis of that year 
in 2014, you had uh, 11, over 11,000 people died from that outbreak. And the Africans who were charging this at the time were dismissed as crazy, lunatic, conspiracy theorists. Um, and I wrote a very in-depth piece with virologist Jonathan Latham. Um, and we found that there was a very substantial case um, for um, that that was lab origin uh, of that. It, it took place, it's, it's very similar to COVID actually. Uh, the outbreak is a thousand miles away from where you would expect it to be, or prior, in this case, where prior Ebola outbreaks had been. In prior natural Ebola outbreaks, there had been a die-off of the local mammalian species. There was no such die-off in this case. They um, associated scientists um, concocted this story where this uh, child in a village just over the border in Guinea, away from the U.S. labs in Sierra Leone, there, there seemed to be a concerted effort to pin the blame on Guinea so that it's not, so that they could say that the outbreak happened in another country, but it's a very porous uh, border region. Um, and they pinned it on this child who they claimed was two years old. He was actually 18 months uh, playing with bats. Difficult to conceive of an 18-month-old playing with bats. Uh, the people in the village don't think that he died of Ebola. His father says that he died of malaria. The healthcare workers um, who helped take care of him and his, and his father who helped take care of him didn't die, um, uh, didn't catch Ebola. Uh, they all think that it was malaria. Uh, and there, there's a whole series of issues, you know, really, again, you know, I mean, it's a 12,000 word piece. I'm not going to go through every aspect of it. Um, well, actually, one, one, one particularly juicy tidbit is that um, people might have heard that the Obama administration put a pause for funding for so-called gain-of-function lab work, that is, the process of making pathogens more deadly or more transmissible. Um, this is something that Fauci has long touted. Um, and um, the, uh, um, the uh, excuse me, um, the, 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 the pause that the Obama administration did was on October 17th, 2014. Um, that's the same day that Ron Klain became Ebola czar. That implies to me that Ron Klain, um, who some of your listeners may not be familiar, Ron Klain is a very plugged in uh, DC operator. He, he was chief of staff for Biden until just a few months ago, which, you know, when you have a president like Biden, is basically tantamount to being prime minister. Um, and um, so he, uh, uh, so that indicates that the Obama administration themselves suspected, at least, um, that there was an outbreak here. And, and the, these groups had gotten a funding cutoff shortly thereafter, again, further indicating suspicion by the Obama administration that there was a, a problem with the labs here that could have actually caused the, the outbreak. Anyway. So these are the same two scientists. So, so part of my hypothesis is that these scientists were very eager to sign up for the role of dismissing the possibility of COVID origins coming out of a lab, because if the global public understood in early 2020, I mean, this was, you know, possibly the, the most, you know, uh, you know, important human story of all time, where the entire global population was focusing on a subject. If the global public at that point had understood that COVID could have originated in the lab, um, then one of the next questions would have been, what about past outbreaks? And that would have led directly to their doorstep, to the doorstep of Gary and Anderson, the two people who testified um, this week. Um, Neither the Republicans or the Democrats would ask about this. I mean, I've sent my material to them. Uh, I've met with a couple of people on the Hill, uh, actually just to Johnson's office. Um, and uh, and I've talked with some others. But, you know, the, the problem is that the Republicans 
are focusing on either pinning the blame on China or trying to get Fauci. And the Democrats are in totally denial mode, pretending that there isn't a problem with any of this lab work and that Fauci is, you know, a paragon of virtue and so on. And some of the um, dynamics of the recent hearing were particularly perverse. For example, the Democrats and Anderson and Gary, when the Republicans were trying to hone in on pinning the blame on Fauci, uh, they would say, well, no, you know, Fauci didn't call that meeting. Jeremy Farrar called that meeting as, you know, uh, and he was sort of, Jeremy Farrar was sort of talked about as this distinguished British scientist. <laughs> you know, nobody said during this, you know, over three hour hearing who Jeremy Farrar was. Jeremy Farrar um, signed, I, I said that there were two pillars of propaganda. One was the Proximal Origins paper, which was the subject of the hearing, but the other one was the Lancet letter put together by Peter Daszak, who uh, funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was complete propaganda. Jeremy Farrar signed that letter. He signed that completely propagandistic letter. And he's the only person to have had a significant role in both pillars of propaganda. He was head of the Wellcome Trust, which is basically the British equivalent of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, it got its funding through a series of pharmaceutical mergers. Um, and then um, several months ago, uh, I'm up on this because he was named chief scientist for the WHO. So we're in this insane situation where the guy who took the lead in both pillars of propaganda about COVID origins is now chief scientist for the World Health Organization as the World Health Organization is being further empowered with a new treaty. And his name is repeatedly mentioned in the hearing and nobody, not the, not the certainly not the Democrats and not even the Republicans, you know, puts forward um, the, the relevant information. Another name that was mentioned as a scientist who played a behind the scenes role in you know, formulating this article, this uh, Proximal Origins article was Ron Fouchier. Um, Ron Fouchier is a completely notorious figure and he didn't have his name on anything and he didn't have his name on anything for a good reason. In 2015, uh, he's a scientist in the Netherlands, in, 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 I'm sorry, in 2011, he um, uh, took the avian flu, which is highly, highly lethal like a, you know, a fatality rate of 50%, but not easily transmissible and made it transmissible among humans. This was regarded as, you know, he depicted this as a great scientific, you know, achievement. Even the New York Times at the time, uh, and I think they finally wrote about it in 2012, the following year, um, uh, they had an editorial entitled An Engineered Doomsday warning of the consequences of this kind of lab work that's all gone down the memory hole but this guy is still calling the shots in these you know secret meetings that we only know about because we've gotten at least some information through some FOIAs there's still a ton of information that we haven't gotten lots of FOIAs that haven't been responded to Freedom of Information Act um, so his name comes up at these hearings and nobody explains who the hell he is it, it, it just, he's just a generic scientist as far as anybody listening to this hearing is concerned. I'm not even, I, I'm not sure if the Republicans even know what, what they're dealing with here. Um, so um, it, it, the, the, again, the partisan dynamics are helping to obscure the underlying structure of, of, of the war-making state. And part of my critique here is that the war-making state has effectively it can hijack anything and everything, as I think a lot of anti-war libertarians realize. And it, it can also hijack the life sciences themselves, um, that they end up being just another instrument of, of what we're talking about. And in this recent article, you're, you're making the case, I think, that we should not just make Fauci a scapegoat. Obviously, uh, justice should be served and, you know, maybe we, we should go after Fauci in some way. But if we limit it to that, the system continues. Um, and I think that that's unfortunately the way that this is heading. The Republicans would love 
to blame Fauci, um, maybe even arrest Fauci or whatever, but mm -hmm. but then the system will go on. So can you talk a little bit about the structure? It's, 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 it's kind of like how the Democrats dealt with Bush. You know, yeah. they were so intent on trying to get Bush that the larger, you know, militaristic enterprise, continue, you know, continued past Bush and Cheney. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see that among libertarians, too. People always want to go after the figures rather than the institutions like, um, you know, some people will call for Jerome Powell to be fired, but to not audit the Fed, you know. Um, so I, I think people should be alert of this, that when when congress is going after particular figures that doesn't mean that they're actually investigating the system itself and and looking at the faults um but can you talk about the current structure what um what are the dangers here you you've alluded to the fact that there really is a bio warfare arms race almost happening uh across the globe um so can you talk about this infrastructure and maybe the power that is being seized by um the who yeah, absolutely. There's no body, um, no legal international body that oversees biowarfare. Um, you know, for uh, nuclear, you have the IAEA, and for chemical, you have the OPCW. Um, there's no commensurate. There's a biowarfare convention. Um, the U.S. signed it in 1972, and the uh, Senate... Um, uh, ratified it unanimously in 1989, and it was the U.S. implementing legislation was written by Francis Boyle, uh, who's a, a fairly independent uh, legal scholar out of the University of Illinois, um, and he thinks this whole system is farcical, uh, and that uh, you know th that they've effectively made the, the treaty and his law mute by the, the, this gain of function lab work uh and um so uh he's been highly critical of these scientists i mean in extreme language you know calling them death scientists and so on um and you know g g given the given the stakes and the consequences it's hard to hard to necessarily disagree with that at all um so um you know the unique aspects of biowarfare, and you know, I, I said that they're they're not responding to FOIAs, and it's particularly nefarious here because you need transparency in this because of the nature of biowarfare. You know, the one good thing about a nuclear war is that you know that it happened. You could be in the middle of a bio war and you wouldn't know it, right? I mean, the Cubans have repeatedly charged that the U.S. has used biowarfare against it. And the U.S. government response has been prove it. Um, and it's difficult to prove. Uh, you know, they have a swine flu outbreak. Uh, they have a dengue fever outbreak. Oh, what a pity. Nice country you got there. Would be a real shame if you had a, uh, you know, uh, an epidemic in your country. It's very difficult to prove it. So this notion that exists that you know that biological weapons are the poor a poor man's weapon is false, um, uh, because of the unique attribute of deniability. You can you can set off a deadly pathogen somewhere and then um, not take responsibility for it. Um, um, and people might be interested in the. Um, you know, the, the whole hubbub about the bioweapons labs in Ukraine, uh, there are actually ties to that with um, what uh, our investigation regarding uh, what happened in West Africa, the firm Metabiota, which was tied to Hunter Biden, was part of the effort in um, Sierra Leone to frame Guinea to, you know, you know in their surveillance, they... Um, seem to have falsified data in order to make it seem as if the outbreak was coming from Guinea, when if you looked at the analysis and you looked at the reporting of more independent groups as they came in, like when Doctors Without Borders came in, they were like, what the hell? There are all of these cases in Sierra Leone. Why are there all these cases in Sierra Leone? We thought that this was centered around Guinea. And that was because Metabiota had... Um, created the false impression 
um, that the epicenter and the start of the epidemic uh, was in was in Guinea. Um, so there's a whole series of these groups um, that are tied to effectively biowarfare and effectively tied to sur uh, to surveillance. Uh, for example, a lot of funding of this uh, of biowarfare comes from USAID, which, as some of your listeners are probably aware, is sort of a soft power CIA um, based out of the State Department or in conjunction with the State Department. You know, USAID sounds like a nice, earthy, crunchy, you know, do-goody kind of thing. It's not. Um, and they fund things like trying to destabilize disfavored governments. Um, and one of the things that they do is fund this dangerous lab work. Um, uh, the folks over at Organic Consumers Association who've done some good work on this tracked some of those programs and some of those programs go back to big tech that Google started some of these predict programs to allegedly predict when an, an epidemic would happen um, and then to do the dangerous lab work to allegedly prevent the outbreaks from happening. And then they got funneled uh, you know, from big tech into being funded by the government and got absorbed into the US government. So you see all kinds of nefarious connections and, and, and what, you know, sort of the obvious thing of uh, this cooperation between parts of the US and Chinese governments. Um, I mean, in one sense, it's a biowarfare arms race, but it's in, in another sense, it's a collusion between uh, the different countries. I mean, I saw that when, you know, when, when I was in Helsinki and I held up my sign, you know, um, uh, nuclear weapon ban treaty, you know, the U.S. and Russia, they're in an arms race, a nuclear arms race, but they get both, both of those governments get off on it, right? Because it empowers them because they got all the nukes. So somehow they are more important than another country, which is more, you know, doing more advancement in terms of economy or education or health or whatever. So it, you know, even though there, there's this constant push and pull, both collision but also collusion, and I see that going on with the U.S.-Chinese relationship as well. So there, there was the infamous hearing where Victoria Newland um, right. alluded to the fact that there was um, Ukrainian biolabs, um, but right. what they kind of walked it back after that. Um, what is the evidence or what do we know about these biolabs were they uh do we do we know that they're trying to use them as weapons or um do they use this gain of function research as a cover uh what do we know about those labs in particular right i i have not done a deep dive into them um some of the scientists who i trust on this issue talk about them as simply grift operations that is that they're not actually doing that dangerous work, but they're just, you know, sort of a gravy train for people trying to grift a couple of million dollars to make some money, which, you know, might, might tie into people like Hunter Biden and so on. Um, other people um, have charged that they are actually working on dangerous pathogens and making them more deadly. And I, I have not, you know, parsed, parsed through that as yet. So okay. I'm going to have to sort of take a pass on that. So um, RFK, uh, when he was doing the Twitter space with Elon Musk, he, he just briefly mentioned that they are working on viruses that can target specific races. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a really big admission right there. And also, I mean, for anyone who watches the Bond movies, um, the most recent one was about this virus that takes over the world or these um, chemicals that take over the world that can target specific people. And I'm wondering if you've seen any evidence of that, because even among more conspiratorial minded people, you hear that and you're like, that sounds like a sci-fi movie. Right. I I'm sorry. What's the movie? The bomb. So uh, James Bond. It, it oh, the, Bond. 
Okay. Yeah, All right. I, I believe it was the, is it time to kill or time to die or something like that? The most recent one, no time to die, I think. Okay. That's what um, it's called. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep up with my, you know, pop culture. I'm, I'm behind on that. <laughs> um, um, look, there's probably a lot we don't know um, because a lot of this work is secretive. Um, but from my limited knowledge, doing ethnically based weapons is very, very difficult. Uh, we are very similar genetically, human beings are. And to target a particular ethnic um, group is, is, is a very, I mean, the, the South Africans tried really hard uh, to, to do that. Um, and in Rhodesia, they actually did target black farmers with anthrax. Um, but that was just simply, you know, geographic proximity that, you know, it wasn't a genetically based uh, weapon. Um, but I mean, you don't know what, what technology brings to the fore. I mean, part of me is even concerned, and I, I've been meaning to talk to scientists about this, about, you know, when, you know, because we, we now, in the, over the last three years, have been in the situation where different power centers have used different vaccines, right? You know, the Chinese had their vaccine and the Russians had Sputnik and the U.S. had, you know, their vaccines. So, I mean, could that be a vector for being able to have bioweapons that target people, not based on their genetics, but based on what vaccine they've had, for example? Um, so, um, you know, I, 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 I don't I don't. I have not seen any substantial evidence that that is an ongoing thing. I really, again, wish that RFK Jr. would focus on what's known, right? You know, we, we know um, that they are doing gain-of-function lab work. We know that the WHO is trying to do a power grab. And I think that he should use his campaign to hone in on those things. Um, so I, I hope that he does. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the, the treaty? What exactly does the WHO treaty do? Um, I, I, I'm not following it that closely. Uh, I've been sticking to COVID origins, but a lot of people who I respect have been focusing on it, including the person who I mentioned before, Meryl Nass. Um, she has a sub stack. I'm, you know, I'd love people to check out my sub stack, obviously, but uh, she has a sub stack as well. And she's been, you know, uh, parsing all of their meetings and um, highlighting other people who are focusing on that as well. I haven't been focusing on it, but I've been mentioning it as, you know, at minimum, a, a very serious, a very serious threat, especially as I say, with somebody like Jamie, Jeremy Farrar as chief scientist of, of the WHO. Uh, that is a terrible combination. You, you had mentioned their connection to um, the Bill Gates Foundation. And I'm wondering if you know anything about the vaccines in Africa that Bill Gates has been. Um, obviously, there's a huge campaign around it. Years ago, you know, I, I encountered an article that that said that most of the malaria cases in Africa are a result of this vaccine, and now I can't find it anywhere. Hmm. Do you are you aware of anything like that? Any story like that? I'm not aware of that. Um, uh, I I have not you know fully investigated. Gates, except in these respects, one, he's funded a lot of this dangerous lab work um, to some of the most notorious scientists uh, doing this dangerous lab work. Um, two, uh, I think a main role that he's played is that he's funded a lot of media. Um, uh, Tim Schwab, who's a fairly establishment journalist, is working on a book on Bill Gates and has documented how he's, you know, funded every place from, you know, The Guardian to, I think, The New York Times even to, you know, just a whole plethora of media outlets. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, and other people have charged that, you know, the whole COVID slash using, you know, climate issues as a pretext for control and so on. Are, are things that you know he's got his finger on 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 both on both things um so i think that there's there's certainly a lot there uh, but i i don't know as much as i should about his his actions in africa but i think that that's worth a lot of concern 
um, and, and attention. Okay, and we're coming up on an hour, but um, I just want to clarify. So you had, you had mentioned that Obama actually passed a rule um, that seemed to get rid of this gain-of-function fun research. Uh, Rand Paul has pressured Fauci on this. What was the exact rule and how are they getting around it? Right. So what, what there was never a prohibition on this kind of dangerous lab work. All Obama did was put a pause on the funding, okay. federal funding of the lab work. But even that had exceptions. And one of the exceptions was funding work through EcoHealth Alliance done at the University of North Carolina with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that could have led to uh, the creation of COVID. Um, uh, and then at, uh, at Fauci's insistence, Trump lifted that pause in 2017. So okay. that's the story with that. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's It's been a Thank pleasure you. and I'd love to have you back on. Um, maybe closer okay. as we get to the election, we can talk about this strategy to bring the right and left together. Um, yeah. But for those who want to check out your work, where, where can they find you? Please check out my Substack, Husseini, H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I uh, -S -S -E dot Substack dot com. Um, and um, all the stuff on COVID origins, the election, uh, other political stuff, some historical deep dives. Uh, so, you know, I put a lot of stuff out there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Liam. All right, there you have it. I'd like to thank Sam for joining me. And as always, thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution and to our podcast producer, Simon Kalpin. And thanks to you all who are subscribed to our email list and support the pack. You can do that over at TakeHumanAction.com. Please remember to like, comment, and share the podcast. And thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next show.